Picture this, if you will. You're an intensivist in the year 2020, and the COVID-19 pandemic has begun to rapidly accelerate in the United States. You receive a call from the emergency department to admit a 55-year-old male intubated for hypoxemic respiratory failure, refractory to non-invasive ventilation. He's pretty sick, says the ER physician, with a note of worry in his voice. I've been breathing 100% oxygen, and he's still got an oxygen saturation of only 80%. We might need to call cardiothoracic surgery and start heart-lung bypass at the bedside. You come to the bedside immediately and see a morbidly obese male, 185 centimeters tall and 160 kilograms, lying supine. He does not appear to be in distress, but is breathing spontaneously over the ventilator. You examine the ventilator settings and see that the patient has been initiated on volume control ventilation with an FiO2 of 100%, rate 22 breaths per minute, tidal volume 550 milliliters, and PEEP of 10 centimeters water. Arterial blood gas reveals a pH of 7.3, PCO2 of 40, and a PaO2 of 45 millimeters mercury. You stop to think, is it time to call the surgeon? Or is there more you can do simply by modifying your strategy for mechanical ventilation? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from respiratory physiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you'll be able to 1. Describe the importance of mechanical ventilation. 2. List the specific indications for mechanical ventilation. 3. Distinguish when to use non-invasive versus invasive ventilation. And 4. List and define the basic ventilator settings and explain their impact on respiratory physiology. Part 1. What is mechanical ventilation? Cellular metabolism requires oxygen, which needs to be replenished as it gets used up, and generates carbon dioxide, which needs to be evacuated from the bloodstream before it builds up to toxic levels. The respiratory system serves both of these functions. First, it's responsible for moving air in and out of the lungs in order to bring the gas concentrations in the respiratory tree closer to those in the atmosphere. You know, high oxygen, low carbon dioxide. Second, it provides a large surface area of thin membranes, the alveoli, through which oxygen can enter and carbon dioxide can leave the bloodstream. When diseases impair either one of these functions, respiratory failure can occur. And in these situations, mechanical ventilation may be required. Now, just to establish some definitions, mechanical ventilation can either be invasive or non-invasive. Invasive ventilation is usually what comes to mind where the interface with the patient's respiratory tree is placed invasively, like an endotracheal tube. But there's also non-invasive ventilation, which uses interfaces like a mask fitted tightly to the patient's face to create a seal. There are huge advantages here when it comes to avoiding the potential for infection and trauma, as well as decreasing or eliminating the need for sedation. Conversely, non-invasive ventilation neither isolates the respiratory tree nor keeps it patent, the interface with the patient's body occurs at the point where the respiratory and GI tracts meet. In both cases, a mechanical ventilator connected to the interface augments or entirely replaces the function of moving air into and out of the lungs, known as ventilation. It also alters the gas concentrations of inspired air, removing carbon dioxide, and delivering as much as five times the normal concentration of oxygen found in the atmosphere. 
Finally, it delivers positive pressure, pushing air into the lungs when under normal circumstances, air would be sucked in. And as we'll discuss, this can be both a benefit and a huge drawback. In critically ill patients, mechanical ventilation saves lives, but it comes with a lot of potential risks. In this brick, we'll look at why patients require ventilatory support, outline both non-invasive and invasive methods of mechanical ventilation, and review the underlying physiologic principles behind the treatment. Pop quiz time. Why is mechanical ventilation used for patients with respiratory failure? Mechanical ventilation moves air in and out of the lungs, alters gas concentrations, and delivers positive pressure to patients with respiratory failure. Part 2. What are some of the indications for mechanical ventilation? The indications for mechanical ventilation, in general, fall into three main categories. One, failure to oxygenate, even despite the administration of supplemental oxygen. Two, failure to ventilate, which leads to inadequate offloading of carbon dioxide. And three, failure to protect the upper airway, or the impending inability to do so, given the clinical course. For this final indication, it's intubation rather than mechanical ventilation that's the key step to addressing the patient's pathology. Failure to oxygenate, or hypoxemic respiratory failure, is defined as a sustained low oxygen saturation that can lead to organ failure, most notably permanent ischemic injury to the brain. Because oxygen is poorly water-soluble, it needs a very large gradient to force it to diffuse into the bloodstream. The alveoli have a partial pressure of oxygen of about 100 millimeters mercury at sea level, compared to 40 millimeters mercury in the bloodstream. Diseases that involve the buildup of fluid in the alveoli, like heart failure, ARDS, pneumonia, can all lead to hypoxemic respiratory failure by forcing the nonpolar oxygen molecule to diffuse across an even wider aqueous barrier than normal. So can diseases that involve loss of alveoli, like emphysema, and diseases that lead to thickening of the diffusion barrier, like interstitial fibrosis. Now, it should be noted that hypoxemic respiratory failure can be addressed non-invasively pretty easily using methods of supplemental oxygen administration, like nasal cannula and oxygen mask. Administering supplemental oxygen increases the partial pressure of oxygen in the alveoli, creating a larger gradient that helps drive oxygen into the bloodstream. But with all non-invasive methods of oxygen supplementation, the oxygen gets diluted with air from the atmosphere, which contains only about 20% oxygen. By sealing out air from the environment, a ventilator is the only intervention that can increase the oxygen concentration to up to 100% of the inspired air. Additionally, a ventilator can improve the oxygenation of the alveoli by maintaining airway pressure throughout the respiratory cycle. The pressure of expiration causes the collapse of a certain portion of the alveoli and distal airways, especially in some pathologic states. But mechanical ventilation can maintain some positive pressure even at the end of the expiratory phase, known as PEEP, keeping alveoli and airways open and therefore capable of gas exchange. Failure to ventilate is itself a fairly straightforward concept, since ventilation is just the volume of air moved in and out of the lungs each minute. Failure to ventilate is how we describe patients that don't breathe deeply or quickly enough. It's also pretty obvious why you might need a mechanical ventilator in patients who fail to ventilate. But why this is specifically tied to carbon dioxide is less obvious. 
It all comes down to the fact that gas exchange requires two things. An adequate rate of ventilation to bring the gas concentrations closer to their atmospheric concentrations, and an adequate rate of diffusion for the gas to cross the alveolar barrier and either enter or exit the bloodstream. Oxygen, like I mentioned, is a highly nonpolar molecule and has a very hard time diffusing across the alveoli, so the rate-limiting step for oxygen entry into the bloodstream is generally diffusion, especially in many pulmonary disease states. Carbon dioxide, on the other hand, is significantly more polar and therefore capable of rapid diffusion across the alveoli and out of the bloodstream. The rate-limiting step, therefore, tends to be the rate of ventilation. In other words, how fast can you blow out that CO2? Furthermore, hyperventilation is a relatively inefficient way to increase the concentration of oxygen in the alveoli. At most, you could theoretically double your oxygen concentration with an infinitely fast minute ventilation. But it's way easier to simply administer supplemental oxygen. With a mechanical ventilator, for example, you can increase the concentration of oxygen in the inspired air to up to five times the normal atmospheric concentration. But atmospheric air has negligible CO2 at baseline, so you can't really decrease the concentration of carbon dioxide any further to improve the diffusion gradient. Which is just as well, because CO2 isn't really diffusion-limited anyway. For these reasons, insufficient minute ventilation tends to primarily result in hypercapnia, which is why the term hypercapnic respiratory failure and hypoventilation are often used interchangeably in a clinical context. Hypoventilation often occurs during overdoses on CNS depressants like opioids, but also when the clinician plans to administer enough of those medications to cause iatrogenic hypoventilation, as in general anesthesia, or for the treatment of status epilepticus. Brain injuries, CNS infections, and other forms of metabolic encephalopathy can also depress the respiratory drive enough to cause hypercapnia. Hypoventilation is particularly common in obstructive lung diseases like COPD, since the rate of ventilation is limited by the narrowed airways. Finally, prolonged hyperventilation or neuromuscular diseases can cause respiratory fatigue that results in hypoventilation once the patient no longer has the strength to sustain the required minute ventilation. Mechanical ventilation can augment or replace a patient's normal respiratory activity, by driving deeper or more frequent breaths that a sick patient would normally make on their own, and the minute ventilation can be delivered with mathematical precision. It's important to note that, very often, there's no need to completely normalize the patient's carbon dioxide, especially if that would require dangerously aggressive ventilation. The adverse effects of carbon dioxide occur when its conversion to carbonic acid results in respiratory acidosis. And while a pH of about 7.4 is normal, a pH of greater than 7.2 is acceptable if you're having difficulty ventilating the patients. This is called permissive hypercapnia. Quick knowledge check, guys. How does mechanical ventilation improve oxygenation? Mechanical ventilation can deliver high concentrations of oxygen that increase the diffusion gradient for oxygen to cross the alveoli into the bloodstream. It can also maintain pressure at the end of expiration and this increased PEEP, as it's called, keeps alveoli open and available for gas exchange. Finally, failure to protect the upper airway often requires a properly inserted endotracheal tube to ensure good airflow. A patient may fail to protect the upper airway because of airway obstruction, as in the case of anaphylaxis, head or neck trauma, and some upper respiratory infections.
Airway protection is also needed when a patient has altered mental status and lacks the normal reflexive ability to protect their airway from aspirating oral secretions or stomach contents. Now, this second category requires a bit of judgment before you proceed with intubation. Many patients, for example, with severe dementia or who have suffered major strokes have permanently impaired cough and gag reflexes and suffer from frequent aspiration pneumonias. And yet, we don't intubate every one of them since they'll likely spend the rest of their lives on a ventilator. Circumstances that warrant emergent airway protection for reasons of altered mental status are generally very acute, or the risk and quantity of aspiration is predicted to be unusually and acutely elevated. A patient with a major gastrointestinal bleed or epistaxis may be intubated even before they become unconscious from hemorrhagic shock, simply because they could potentially aspirate a huge quantity of blood that would lead to devastating pulmonary injury. Alternatively, a patient who is acutely comatose from a major head injury should be immediately intubated since neurosurgical intervention could feasibly improve their neurologic outcome. In these conditions, the main challenge is generally not with meeting their oxygenation and ventilation needs, but rather the technical challenge of placing the endotracheal tube. If you've never intubated a patient actively spewing blood from their mouth or tried to slide a small endotracheal tube past a retropharyngeal abscess without rupturing it, well, let's just say it'll spike your adrenaline levels for a bit. Part 3. When do we use non-invasive versus invasive ventilation? Mechanical ventilation can deliver oxygenated air under pressure through a non-invasive external interface or an invasive tube inserted into the trachea. The most common non-invasive interfaces are the sealed nasal cannula used for high-flow nasal cannula device and the nasal, half-face, and full-face masks used for CPAP and BiPAP. The most common interface for invasive ventilation is the endotracheal tube, specifically the orotracheal tube inserted through the mouth. But an endotracheal tube can also be inserted through the nose, which is sometimes required during oral surgery. And a tracheostomy tube can be placed through the skin directly into the trachea if a patient requires long-term mechanical ventilation or if emergent airway control is needed in a patient whose airway can't be accessed through the mouth. Let's talk a bit about non-invasive ventilation. Now, when possible, non-invasive ventilation is the preferred method of ventilation for hypoxemic respiratory failure that's refractory to treatment with supplemental oxygen, and in many cases, also hypoventilation. The complication rates are much lower than with invasive ventilation. It can also be used outside the intensive care unit, and it's a lot easier to wean patients off respiratory support when they no longer need it. Non-invasive ventilators work primarily by sealing out air from the atmosphere, thereby delivering higher and more predictable concentrations of oxygen, and pushing air into the lungs using positive pressure. Apart from the specific interface, there are three main modes of ventilation. The high-flow nasal cannula interface is paired with a machine that warms and humidifies oxygen, then blasts it through the nose at flow rates that are much higher than those used for conventional supplemental oxygen. The mouth is open to the atmosphere, which unfortunately means that the pressure and the oxygen delivered are variable, depending on how much the patient keeps their mouth open. The upside is that this method doesn't impede a patient's cough, making it especially useful for patients with pneumonia and COPD who benefit greatly from clearing secretions from the airway. Continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, maintains a steady and predictable concentration of inspired oxygen when paired with a mask that covers the nose and mouth. It delivers continuous predictable positive pressure throughout the entire respiratory cycle. 
This increases the number of alveoli and small airways that are open and available for gas exchange throughout the respiratory cycle, known as recruitment, thereby improving oxygen. The positive pressure makes inspiration easier, but it makes expiration harder, meaning that oxygenation is typically improved more than ventilation. In some cases, like in patients with obstructive lung diseases who already have difficulty with expiration, CPAP can put them at risk of hyperinflation and pulmonary barotrauma. Conversely, the increased intrathoracic pressures caused by administration of CPAP have a surprising benefit in patients with congestive heart failure. It decreases the preload to the failing heart, making the failing heart's workload more manageable and allowing the left ventricle to clear pulmonary edema from the lungs. Bilevel positive airway pressure, or BiPAP, involves a ventilator that can sense when a patient is breathing in or out and delivers a higher inhalation pressure and a lower exhalation pressure. The exhalation pressure is still positive and keeps the airways open to improve oxygenation. But the higher inspiratory pressure means that unlike CPAP, BiPAP can actually increase the minute ventilation. Thus, in patients who are hypoventilating, BiPAP is the only non-invasive modality that will be of any use. The main catch is that while non-invasive ventilation can be used for failure to oxygenate and failure to ventilate, the external interface makes it worse than useless in patients with failure to protect the upper airway. Think about it. If you take a patient with profuse hematemesis and seal a mask down over their face, you've now made the problem about 10 times worse. A good rule of thumb is that a patient who's so altered that they can't remove their own mask if they vomit should not be on non-invasive ventilation unless closely supervised. This makes the use of BiPAP in patients with failure to ventilate particularly tricky, as hypercapnia can quickly lead to depressed mental status. These patients must be closely monitored until the ventilation assistance causes them to become more alert. Invasive ventilation is the first-line intervention when a patient is not able to protect their upper airway, or if a patient's oxygenation or ventilation needs can't be met with non-invasive methods. During orotracheal intubation, the patient is sedated and sometimes paralyzed, and a laryngoscope is used to move the tongue and visualize the larynx. Once visualized, an endotracheal tube can be placed through the mouth and between the vocal cords to access the trachea. Now, there are a number of consequences to both intubation and mechanical ventilation. Insertion of the tube itself can cause trauma to the teeth, oropharynx, and larynx if not performed carefully. Every day that the patient remains intubated, they face the risk of contracting a ventilator-associated pneumonia from the foreign body providing a path from their germy mouths right through their vocal cords. And the pressure of the balloon that seals off the trachea can cause pressure ulcers or scarring that leads to subglottic stenosis. The presence of an endotracheal tube causes enough pain and anxiety that itself requires enough sedation to depress the patient's respiratory drive, which then has to be tapered off in order for the patient to demonstrate that they can breathe on their own. The constant sedation, especially with benzodiazepines, can induce a delirium state that makes it difficult to impossible for the patient to cooperate with a ventilator weaning trial. Finally, the ventilator itself can cause iatrogenic injury if the clinician isn't careful. Normal respiration involves using the muscles of inspiration to create a vacuum that sucks air in, whereas mechanical ventilation places the lungs in the highly unnatural state of getting air pushed in under positive pressure. Excess volume or pressure delivered by the ventilator can result in ventilator-induced lung injuries. In patients with obstructive lung disease, 
Attempting to increase the respiratory rate too aggressively can leave insufficient time for expiration, leading to progressively increasing lung volumes as the expirations are terminated early. Alveolar distension and rupture can ensue, and any pneumothorax that results is made even more dangerous by the fact that positive pressure ventilation is more likely to cause tension pneumothorax because the air driven into the lungs is at higher pressures than when the air is sucked in. The ventilator system can also harbor several bacteria that cause very nasty and difficult-to-treat pneumonias like Legionella and Pseudomonas. Furthermore, since the ventilator conducts most or all of the work of breathing, prolonged time on the ventilator causes the respiratory muscles to gradually weaken, making weaning from prolonged ventilation difficult. For this reason, patients with serious chronic ailments will sometimes sign an advanced directive or appoint a healthcare proxy to make decisions on their behalf, should they be too sick to do so themselves. They may make it clear that, in the event that they fail to oxygenate, ventilate, or protect their airway, that they refuse to be intubated. In many of these cases, once a patient is intubated, the burden of their chronic disease will make weaning from the ventilator close to impossible. Time for a knowledge check, guys. Under what circumstances is non-invasive ventilation an unacceptable alternative to invasive ventilation? Non-invasive ventilation should usually be attempted for failure to oxygenate or failure to ventilate, but it is not an acceptable substitute for patients who fail to protect their upper airway. Part 4. What are some of the basics of ventilator setup and adjustment? So now that y'all know the reasons not to put someone on a ventilator, now let's introduce y'all to the basics, just in case you do. For a patient on mechanical ventilation, there are five basic parameters you have to know. FiO2, PEEP, respiratory rate, tidal volume, and peak inspiratory pressure. FiO2 and PEEP are the most intuitive, and are the vent settings that primarily determine how well a patient oxygenates. FiO2 stands for fraction of inspired oxygen. Basically, what percent oxygen is the air that's being delivered to the patient? For reference, room air is about 20% oxygen, and you can go all the way up to 100% on the ventilator. PEEP stands for positive end expiratory pressure. Basically, how much positive pressure is still being exerted even when the patient is done exhaling. Like I mentioned, PEEP improves oxygenation by keeping alveoli and lower airways open and available for gas exchange. In most patients, oxygen should be improved by increasing PEEP and FiO2 in a stepwise fashion, to avoid the free radical damage that comes from excessive FiO2, as well as the barotrauma and decreased preload that come from excessively high PEEP. Respiratory rate, tidal volume, and peak inspiratory pressure primarily determine how well a patient ventilates, and therefore how well they offload carbon dioxide. The minute ventilation, or the amount of air cycled in and out of the lungs each minute, quantifies the patient's ventilation and can be titrated precisely by adjusting a patient's respiratory rate, or breaths per minute, and the tidal volume, or the amount of air with each breath. The respiratory rate of a healthy individual is between 12 and 18 breaths per minute, and usually substantially higher on the vent. But the respiratory rate can't be so high that a patient can't complete their expiration, which will lead to breath stacking and progressively increasing lung volumes and therefore lung trauma. The tidal volume is usually calculated at 6 milliliters per kilogram ideal body weight, keeping in mind that certain disease states, like ARDS, are more prone to ventilator-associated lung injury. If you set the respiratory rate or tidal volume too high, 
The ventilator may need to shoot air into the lungs forcefully enough to cause barotrauma in order to meet the parameters you set. Therefore, a peak inspiratory pressure is often set to reduce this likelihood. But be warned that if a patient's continually hitting their peak inspiratory pressure, they won't get their full tidal volume, and the minute ventilation they receive won't be the minute ventilation you've set for them. The ventilator has the ability to sense when the patient takes a breath on their own, delivers the breath when triggered by the patient's inspiratory effort, and then delivers additional breaths as needed to meet the minimum set by the respiratory rate. This improves ventilator synchrony, thus requiring less sedation and reducing the likelihood that the patient will spike their own peak inspiratory pressures by fighting against the vent and limiting their own minute ventilation. If a patient's still fighting, however, you may need to temporarily increase the sedation or even paralyze them. Now, that's a painfully brief overview on mechanical ventilation, which is an art as well as a science. But at least it'll make you fluent in the basics of why we adjust the settings that we do. Final knowledge check, gang. What three parameters can you alter to decrease the PCO2 in a ventilated patient? To decrease the PCO2, you can increase the respiratory rate, increase the tidal volume, or increase the peak inspiratory pressure. And that's a wrap. Let's see how fluent you are in the basic principles of the life-sustaining mechanical ventilator. First, can you list the three basic indications for mechanical ventilation? The three basic indications for mechanical ventilation are failure to oxygenate, failure to ventilate or blow off carbon dioxide, and failure to protect the upper airway. For failure to protect the upper airway, it's important to note that the key intervention is not actually accomplished by the ventilator, but by the endotracheal tube itself. Second, can you describe when non-invasive ventilation is preferable to invasive ventilation and when invasive ventilation is actually required? Non-invasive ventilation should be used whenever possible in patients who fail to oxygenate as it avoids the complications of intubation trauma, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and sedation and weaning requirements. The non-invasive ventilation modality BiPAP can be used in patients who fail to ventilate, though it should be used under close supervision if the patient has altered mental status from the buildup of carbon dioxide. But in patients failing to protect their airway, invasive intubation is required to secure the airway and isolate it from the oropharynx and GI tract. Non-invasive ventilation will often put the patient at greater risk of aspiration. Third, can you list the two vent parameters that determine how well a patient oxygenates? Oxygenation is determined by the fraction of inspired oxygen, or FiO2, and the positive end expiratory pressure, or PEEP. Finally, can you list the three vent parameters that determine how well a patient ventilates? The minute ventilation is equal to the respiratory rate times the tidal volume, and roughly quantifies the rate at which carbon dioxide can be excreted. The peak inspiratory pressure limits the maximal pressure during the respiratory cycle to avoid barotrauma, and can limit the tidal volume that's delivered. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. 
A patient intubated for hypoxemic respiratory failure has ventilator settings of 22 breaths per minute, tidal volume of 550 mLs, PEEP of 10, and is at the maximum FiO2 of 100%, but is still hypoxemic. Can you modify his ventilator settings to improve his oxygenation, or does he need to go on heart-lung bypass? You increase the patient's PEEP from 10 to 14 centimeters water, then wait patiently, as you know that alveolar recruitment can take over an hour. Sure enough, within 30 minutes, the patient has an oxygen saturation of 100%, and you start to reduce the FiO2. You can actually cause lung damage from excessive oxygenation, you explain, so I'm trying to keep the FiO2 from maxing out. You already know that given the patient's morbid obesity, his ideal body weight warrants a decreased tidal volume, which will in turn require you to increase the respiratory rate to maintain his minute ventilation and keep the PCO2 stable. But you avoid changing too many settings at once, instead making a mental note to come by in an hour to reassess and alter settings accordingly. Gradual, deliberate modifications, frequent reassessments, and targeted adjustments, that's the essence of intensive care medicine. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcast. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends.